it's a huge lesson for companies to understand that if you have something and you move it to, to being an open source, you will get help from the community, maybe for even the guys that created the main package that you're using. It's your boy Josh Wolf coming to you live and direct from the internet from Brisbane, Australia. And today I'm talking to my main man, Dan Shapir, all the way over in Tel Aviv in Israel. Welcome, Dan. So my name is Dan Shapir, as you've just mentioned. I'm the CTO at Baker. Uh, I've been in the past in a few big other companies, fintech companies, uh, in the army, also as a developer in the intelligence units. And uh, I've been here in the new company, PayK, for the past probably six months. So PayK is basically actually just like you, an Australian company, uh, which is a company that allows or basically facilitates the ability for group payments, allowing multiple people. I know it mainly in Australia since it's our market that go for a, for a beer, maybe a barbecue, uh, buying uh, something for the teacher or all those kind of stuff. So they have to somehow collect the money from everybody and pay that person for a gift, maybe a birthday gift or whatever. So normally you just collect the money manually, you know, by, by cash. Normally you just pay from your own money as a collector and then you start, you know, running after people to get the money back. So it's kind of a hassle. It's, so the main idea behind the company is allowing people to pay using the credit card, later on a bank account, maybe PayPal. So everybody sees on the mobile application, both Android and iOS, if who paid, how much did he pay, when did he pay, it can even remind people to pay. The company is actually made uh, after we've already had such an amazing company in Israel called Paybox. So it's the same company. We're just rebranding it to Australia. Uh, it has over a million users in Israel. It, was, it wasn't acquired, but the local uh, usage in Israel was acquired by one of the biggest banks in Israel and uh, it created a huge market with multiple uh, other banks creating a similar application as well. Huh, I love so, it. Yeah, we're a new fintech company in Australia, just started a few weeks ago. Uh, that's it. That's us. That's so good, man. Straight out of Silicon Valley, right? The guys sitting around the table, they order the dinner and then they're like dividing up the money. They're like, dude. Like, what a problem. How many other people have this problem? Boom, startup. Yeah, it's such a simple idea with an amazing effect on people's lives. Yeah. And, and so simple. Yeah, it's great. And uh, I read that book, The Startup Nation, or maybe it's just called Startup Nation about Israel. And yeah, and then there's a lot of high-tech startups uh, in Israel. Seems to be the thing there. You know how I found you? I was... I was looking, um, I think, at the dependencies or the, no, the dependence of the ZB node library on NPM. And then I was just like, hey, what's this thing? And then it was like the at payk slash nestjs ZB. And then I, I was looking at it and I was like, dude, this is what I wanted to do with the ZB node library. Turn it into a decorator and then, you know, just add it to routes. And like you'd done it. Yeah, we actually had... In the previous companies I worked for, Payoneer, which is also a much bigger, huge multinational uh, fintech company, we created our own uh, state machine workflow manager. 
we didn't use anything from the outside and it was .NET, so it was a bit harder. And we really suffered by having something created from the inside, lack of functionality, lack of visibility, lack of tools, lack of documentation, community. You are doing everything, creating everything from scratch. So everything is basically manual labor. Everything is lots of coding to get a very small amount of, of value. Unlike the BPMN uh, editor and everything getting automatically done and made for you on the ZB platform. So when I came to a new place, I started searching for a, a good solution. So I reached a few places, which I'm not sure was that good or definitely not Kubernetes or cloud ready. It was old stuff. And then I just saw on the same day that you guys released the production version, the 0.20, and it was cloud native, ready for being used, tons of amazing features. So I just started playing around with it. Also when I arrived, I, we were using very old node code, you know, the Vanilla Express, a huge monolith, extremely huge, very old, six years old, tons of different people touching the code. So why think about how will we upgrade ourselves? How will we be better? How will we be, you know, a real fintech company that people will trust in a much better way? You want to have the idea of a workflow, something making sure that you will have a retry. You will have a visibility for your support center of maybe something failed, what's going on? So many tools that are, I think that ZB is probably something that should be used in any company that cares about the customer. So it was a perfect match. And then I started uh, finding and thinking about how can I, can I add it to Nest.js, which we chose as our new framework uh, for creating new, the new microservices for the platform of, our, of Payke. So yeah, it was lots of digging to the code of both uh, NodeZB, which is written so clear and, and such a small footprint and searching out to add it to as a decorator, as you said, for uh, Nest, because we have a few developers here, not all of them know TypeScript, not all of them even knew Node or JavaScript. So having the ability to migrate someone from C-sharp or Java to this system is basically all about how, you, how user-friendly is a way to implement something. So Yeah, the, uh, the footprint match. of that code base has actually increased um, a little bit, and it's become a little more complicated because now it's handling things like uh, connection retries. And also broker back pressure. In the latest release of ZB, there's this concept of broker back pressure where if the broker is getting overloaded, it's going to push back on requests. You have coded some logic into the library to kind of handle the retries. So that's complicated a little bit, but yeah, it was pretty simple to write the wrapper for the gRPC um, command API. There's like a handful of commands in there and that's it. It's real simple. And how'd you come across Nest? Like how'd that come about? I came a long time ago from a Node background, but I mostly made uh, application using C-sharp and uh, ASP.NET and that uh, kind of platform, Microsoft platform. But when I came here, it was a already running company using Node. So I wouldn't want to change the entire knowledge base of the company to a different uh, technology. It's probably the right thing to use the appropriate tools according to the appropriate people that you've got. But I did know that I didn't want to use uh, JavaScript as it is. Like I knew that I wanted to migrate the company to having some sort of a type awareness, uh, some sort of a way, mainly to, due to the fact that having microservices without some sort of a swagger or 
Swagger, by the way, for everyone who was listening and not knowing what it is, it's an open API that allows a way, a visual way to explain what kind of endpoints you've got on that microservice. Um, it has uh, some sort of a playground like Postman to work with those APIs. And since JavaScript isn't typed, there's actually no way to generate Swagger or most of the stuff that you want because nothing is typed. The compiler doesn't know what it's holding in hand. It's only runtime. So I started searching for TypeScript uh, alternatives, frameworks. I found a few. Most of them weren't built around Express, which is something I didn't want because I knew that most, if not all, of the plugins that you find around the web for connecting two different providers or having OWASP, all of those kind of stuff, have an Express middleware. So I wanted to find something that is wrapping Express but exposing it in a, in a much more mature and TypeScript way. So we went through, I think, a month and a half of creating tons of POCs in different frameworks. None of them was as mature as NestJS, and Nest just basically blew me away. It felt like using something much stronger than even Strongloop that had also a big notion in the JavaScript world, or .NET and ASP, MVC, all of those kind of stuff. So it was kind of... An easy choose, you know, all the decorators and the amazing documentation that they've got. Again, also the footprint for such a huge framework is rather small. And as I've created what you've just talked about, the plugin for Nest and Zibi, it's running on top of that, that everything is created there as an interface and dependency injection made for microservices. So they've got Kafka and RabbitNQ and gRPC. <laughs> so I just looked at it and said, okay, cool. If they got all those kind of plugins, let's create another one. And maybe one day something else. So that was like the basic idea of searching for framework, something that will allow me to, to expand it and not something that is closed and you've got to just opt in to everything that you've got and that's it. So that, that was like the main incentive to finding NestJS. Yeah, I was going through the code at one point a few weeks back and I was like looking through it going like, where does it do anything? Kind of like functional programming, right? Where you, you just kind of declaratively state what it is that you want to do and then how it is that it does it is kind of like several layers deep and like you don't need to worry about that. Like that's someone else's concern. It's, it's a very opinionated framework. It basically goes over the conversion, over configuration, which if you go to what normal JavaScript programmers know, let's say React, React is basically an amazing framework, or not a framework, a tool, but it basically tells you, do whatever you want, however you want, but you've got to think about how to do it. So you plug and play tons of little stuff to get your own framework, which is amazing if you have a very custom need, but it's much harder if you just want to go live as fast as you can and say that you want to onboard people fast. Because if you take one guy that developed React and you bring another guy from another company, mm you probably won't know exactly what you're doing because you're doing it in such a different way because everyone has their own taste of React. So Express is basically the same for everybody who's doing a, a node server. You can do however you want it. You can splash your files in multiple places. You can write or not write unit tests, choose Mocha or Jest or all those kind of stuff. So having a framework that shows all those stuff for you and everything is done kind of mag magically, you can go through the source code and it's not that complex, but most of the stuff for the average programmer is just put a decorator on your function and that's it. Boom, it works. Yeah, it's very pragmatic. It's like there's no business value in creating yet another framework, which 
ultimately is what you're going to end up doing. You're going to create your own, as you say, custom kind of rolled conventions and everything for your own company. But this one's like comes out of the box with batteries included. It allows a must, much faster way and must, much better pace of creating new microservices. We need to, in a matter of a few months, probably migrate from a monolith to 15, 20 microservices and having some things that you know that will be exactly the same in all of those microservices allow, first of all, for easier going between one another, making sure that even if four different people develop four different microservices, everybody will know to work between those because fundamentally they're the same. I started trying to write a, a mock, a Nest.js gRPC server that mocks the ZB gateway API in order to be able to return that error response that you get when the broker does back pressure, which is gRPC status eight resource exhausted. At the moment, it's not at all trivial to do that. So I was like looking at it and thinking, you know, maybe I'll jump in and contribute that piece to get it over the line. Yeah, it's actually rather easy to add stuff though. It's also a very open community for pull requests. They had uh, tons of requests for adding Kafka. Not that as the one before that added Kafka as a microservice. By the way, adding what you say would probably be easier, even if not adding it directly to the gRPC plugin, creating a, your own small package, only wrapping around the gRPC uh, plugin. Which is the approach that you took with the, um, the ZB stuff. Exactly. Since I wasn't sure that everybody will need it, it's easier and a better way to just have it as a plugin and use the appropriate way of injecting it into the system. So the main platform has what most people need, but if you have any need for something specific, you can always add it. So that was like the, the main idea. And did you do POCs of uh, different kind of orchestration engines as well? We made a few checks with uh, other competitors. Most of them, if not all of them, cost money. They just weren't as easy for a developer to use and definitely not as easy for a support you have uh, in the Zbit platform, they operate, right? The visualization um, component. Well, that was the first thing that we had a feedback that thinking about what we, I had in the previous company was mainly that each time we had an issue, nobody besides the developer could actually understand what was going on because you had to query the database and check stuff, understand exactly where in the code it changed. There was no visualization for what's going on or an ability for a customer support guy or tech support to just, to just do a retry. You know, speak with the tech guy, understand, okay, just try it again and click a retry. So none of those features I saw in any other alternative. And again, I didn't see, I only saw one alternative, which was ready for using in the cloud. All the other ones were create your own VM, actual VM, not uh, Kubernetes or anything, install it, and it's, that's it. There's no clustering, no multi-nodes. So ZB was a huge change. I got to ZB actually from going to your uh, main software, Kamunda, uh, which was, yeah, which looks amazing, but is extremely hard to implement if you want everything to be cloud native, since, again, it's, it's not meant to be used that way. I mean, it's a very mature, um, full-featured kind of thing, but it's, it's a traditional BPM engine. And ZB was like a complete rethink from first principles and looking at, you know, how things are happening, uh, you know, at massive scale and cloud native. And, and like the, where they went to with that was like, it's all about streams, streams. Data. Exactly. 
The other one that you looked at, that's also cloud native. Which one is that? No, no, I didn't find any other one that was cloud native. I found another one that supported having some sort of uh, management for the uh, customer support. I don't remember the name, actually, but it was something around workflow manager. It was a big, um, I think, British company. And was, it, was that one closed source, was it? Yeah, all of them were closed source. I don't think I found even one that was open source. I, I'm not, I'm, no, I don't remember finding anything that was open source. All free. Yeah. Okay. And where are you guys at in terms of like implementing, implementing the whole system? So we had a few months ago only one monolith. Now we have three new services. The first one that we're doing with them is being as naive as you can, HTTP calls, nothing unique. The idea is in the coming sprints, moving to uh, ZB. All the new stuff are written in Nest, right? So we, we had until now, we were waiting to see regarding the Kamunda beta for cloud. I understood that the timeline is a bit too late for us and we already need to start working with it. So we pushed our usage as far as possible. But that's it. We have to start using it. So probably in the coming weeks, we will start already having actually one of our main flows, which is paying money. You know, like that's what we do. Uh, move to Zibi because that's, that's the place that you have the most risk of not using an appropriate workflow engine. Because if something fails in the middle, you might, you know, have a huge issue about the way you manage the money. So today what we have is everything is fully transactional since it's a it's one microservice, you know, it's monolith. As long as you are in a monolith, having a workflow manager is important, but not critical since you can just say, I'll wrap everything in one uh, transaction, either everything works or everything fails. But once you go microservices, there's no such thing because either you do a two-phase commit, yeah, which is crazy, or distributed. And managing a distributed uh, transaction is something that is basically fond upon since you have to have so many logs and so many weird stuff and weird scenarios. So a workflow engine is a must. This print, we created a transaction service on the next print that we'll have to, uh, to work with Debbie. And will you use like the compensation pattern with that? So it depends on the flows, because if you have a way, let's, let's say that an email wasn't sent. So no, probably no compensation. So the main idea will be that only if you had a failure that is related to the money, you will do a compensation flow. But as long as you pass the critical path, meaning you all the important flows happen, let's say uh, the, you took the money from the credit card company, you deposited it in the appropriate account, and you updated the balance of the group of people that are in the same group, that's it. The next phase, sending an SMS, sending an email, if those fail, you can retrain it later, go on the idea of eventually consistent, you know, which is like one of the most important ideas of microservices and not going on the idea of rolling back the entire flow. Right. Okay, so you'd probably put those in different flows and maybe trigger them from each other. Yeah, so the idea is uh, just, I think, two days ago, maybe three days ago, uh, there was a pull request that was closed in Zippy, which was so important, so amazing. Uh, we asked for it for a, few, for a long time. It's the ability to have uh, sort of an await on a, on a workflow instance. So saying, I'm creating a workflow instance and I want to wait for it to finish because I want to have in my hands a response for the customer saying, okay, that's it, your money is gone. But I don't want to be in a state that I have to do it in one step because I want it 
across multiple microservices. So I think two days ago it was released, not yet in a newer package in the ZB node, but uh, in the main ZB. So it will allow us to basically do the critical path as, a, let's say, an online flow, having multiple steps, but awaiting the response. Once they are done sending a message inside ZB, having another uh, workflow catch that message as a start event and start doing the, the afterward, the, the, what you get afterwards. So that's like the main idea. Okay, yeah, I saw that. It got merged into master, but I don't know if it's been rolled into any release yet. Mm, I only saw it uh, being closed. Yeah, so it, it gets closed, which means it's been merged into, into master, and then uh, they still got to roll a release. I guess the easiest way to check that would be to go to, to Docker Hub and see when the latest snapshot um, image was released. Mm, okay, I'll check it. I'll, I'll tell you what, man, I'll stick that thing into the ZB node library as soon as possible because I've been working around that exact scenario. Yeah, it's, it's such a cool way of using a workflow engine. It's probably a, a bunch of things, but was it like uh, scalability or maintenance or what, what's been the kind of the drivers behind this kind of massive refactoring for you? So it's a bunch of stuff. I start with like the most trivial, at least here in Israel. As you said, it's a startup nation, right? Uh, tons of startups. It's actually per capita. It's the first or second, it depends when in the world, compared to Silicon Valley. Only Silicon Valley in uh, San Francisco is a bit higher. Part of the time, actually, Israel has more per capita. So you have lots of competition between startups about recruiting people. So if you have... a old and let's say not sexy code base architecture it's much harder to recruit and to maintain actually uh, employees since you have an employee writing the same bad old code and if an employee in israel will see that he keeps on writing the same bad code same old technologies nothing is moving forward you're not advancing in the technology he will probably leave okay because he has so many opportunities most of the time in the same building, okay? Like you can just look at the floor behind him, beneath you, above you, the door to the right, and you find a huge, amazing startup just walking there, maybe we'll go. Since we have so many huge American companies here, Microsoft, Intel, uh, Google, Amazon, all the big companies have a huge R&D center in Israel. So the market is basically going crazy. So one of the huge incentives of having a good architecture, besides all the important technological stuff, is making sure your employees are happy. And with the white generation, it's probably one of the most important things, since employees are probably what makes a company work and tick. So that's like the, one of the reasons. The second one was maintainability, yeah. Uh, it was developed, the main system, like five years ago for Paybox, and, the original Israeli company. And each time there was an issue, a bug in production, you know, it's people's money, so you don't want to have such a, such a thing. It was really hard to decipher what's, what's going on. Where is it coming from? What created the issue? How can we make sure it doesn't happen again? If you have a bad architecture, probably you will have more issues and more bugs. And uh, yeah, we're in the company. Having such a thing is not something that we would like. The third thing was uh, probably the easiest thing. The scale is probably the word that you hear the most everywhere. And if you don't have microservices, so the footprint that you've got is a huge footprint for your monolith, and you have to have basically horizontal scaling. 
but also the scaling per one service, meaning you have to have a huge VM for that specific service. And you can just run tons and tons of pods for the same one. Or you can go vertical scaling, which is nice, but doesn't really help on Node on the same way since there's an amount of, of calls that you can reach in Node. That's the maximum amount you can reach on a single one-threaded run loop. So having microservices allows you to basically move the load and understand, okay, maybe that specific uh, know, microservices sending SMS or push notifications, it has a huge amount of load at a tiny footprint. So just, just create you know, 15 or 20 or 50 pods with elastic, uh, in, uh, in elastic way even, in a very, very minimal cost. So it's a fraction of the cost for even uh, an amazing scaling compared to a much harder way of scaling something that is a huge monolith. Awesome. Well, you know, thank you so much for your, for creating that Nest.js uh, package and, you know, personally introducing me to Nest.js because like I've started using it now, a huge fan. I'm totally in love with it. It's awesome. And thanks for the contribution that that is because, you know, other people are going to be um, using that a lot. I'm sure of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It'll be great. Yeah, and I'd love to check back with you to see how things are going once you get uh, more of it into production and what you discover along the way. So maybe we could circle back around like a, a couple of months and do another episode. It will be great. We'll be probably doing it in the next few weeks, starting doing it. So in a couple of months, we'll have a much better feedback on what's going on. And actually maintaining the libraries internally part of our workload. So we know that each library that we distribute out is something that we need to give a huge impact on the pull request and checking what people want. The reason I was asked a few times, why are we doing it as an open source? It's in a fintech company, it's most of the time hard to do something open source, but something like that, which is, has, has a huge impact on the company, the success of the companies, if it works correctly with all the infrastructures if you've got. And by doing it and having it open source, you saw it. And you're the maintainer of ZB nodes, so you give a pull request, you help adapt it and you help update it. So you have more and more people doing it and more and more people giving into the, the platform, giving into open source. So it's a huge lesson for companies to understand that if you have something and you move it to, to being an open source, you will get help from the community, maybe for even the guys that created the main package that you're using. <laughs>